welcome to the Colby Daniels Podcast. What's going on, everyone? It is game week. Officially, we have Big 12 college football this weekend. We have the NFL kicking off on Thursday night. I have the full-blown football fever. I've done two fantasy football drafts this week, and I am football, football, football. I'm really excited about this week, and I've been looking forward to it for a long time. But in terms of most years, most seasons, we have this month-long buildup to the college football season where we just crave it every single day. And a lot of that is because there's a lull in the sports calendar. Right now, we have Major League Baseball going. We have the NBA playoffs. We have the Stanley Cup playoffs. In tennis, we're watching the U.S. Open. In golf, we just had the torch championship. There have been amazing UFC cards. There's soccer going on. I mean, it's a sports smorgasbord right now. So there hasn't been that void leading up to college football like we normally get, but it's officially game week and I have the fever. I'm just hoping and praying that the next three days, nothing happens to prevent all these games from kicking off on Saturday. Already this week, we had the situation with Oklahoma State and Tulsa. Baylor and Law Tech canceled their game. I know TCU's game has been postponed. By the way, I said canceled. That's not the right terminology. It's been postponed, which is which is really the perfect situation. I love that the Big 12 slated these games the way that they did, so you do have the opportunity to play that game next weekend as opposed to having to completely wipe it off your schedule. How crazy is it, though, that it is football season and it's game week, and the main topic of conversation after last night, as I record this on Wednesday morning, is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Woj drops a bomb on us last night as I'm in the middle of a fan fantasy football draft, essentially saying the Thunder and Billy Donovan have decided to part ways. He will not be back as the Thunder's head coach. Everything that I've gathered makes it sound like this was a mutual decision and that all parties are pleased with the outcome. I don't doubt that the two parties in this scenario get along and are happy for each other to go in different directions, but the way that I kind of saw this thing is this. Billy Donovan does a hell of a job this season for a team that bought in, and I felt like if he wanted to come back, he was going to be afforded that opportunity. If I had to guess, I would say Billy Donovan was given that opportunity, and when he started looking at what the next few seasons are going to look like, I think it was pretty clear to him that at some point, you're going to have to press the rebuild button, and none of us know to what degree that actually happens. But it's not as gloomy as it was a season ago. It's not a total teardown and not a total rebuild like we kind of thought it was going to be in 2019, because over the course of this year, you have some established players. You have building blocks in Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Darius Baisley, and Lou Dort, So you're not starting from scratch. But when I kind of look at what this thing is, I can't imagine Danilo Gallinari is back. I think he signed somewhere else. I would be shocked if Chris Paul plays for the Thunder next season. I think he's moved before next season starts. I think he's played his last game in a Thunder uniform. And it very much felt like that was the case when he did the video following the Game 7 loss, thanking Thunder fans and, and just appreciating the city for the support they had given him. So CP3 and Danilo Gallinari, I think, are gone, will not be a part of the team as next season begins. The interesting part of of what this rebuild looks like, I think, consists of Steven Adams and Dennis Schroeder. What happens with those two players? If you're the Thunder and you're going into rebuilding mode, it makes all the sense in the world that you try and trade any pieces like an Adams or a Schroeder for as many assets as possible. Now, the other great thing for Sam Presti is he doesn't have to give these players away. If you're not getting something that you feel like is a fair deal, you can play this thing out because both Steven Adams and Dennis Schroeder each 
have one year left on their contract. So if you don't find the right deal, you want to keep those guys around for the final season, you let that play out. If you want to bring them back, you have the ability to offer them the contract that you think best fits the rebuild and let them make the decision. For instance, I think the Thunder would want Steven Adams back after this year. Do they want him back at $27 million? Absolutely not. So it's probably a situation where if they don't trade him, the contract ends, they offer him substantially less to stick around, and then he can stay or he can go find more money. Same thing with Dennis Schroeder. I think Dennis Schroeder is a starting caliber point guard in the NBA, I think somebody is going to make him an offer that's going to be pretty good. Do the Thunder want to invest in Dennis Schroeder to that degree when we are talking about rebuild? And at some point, you want to hand the keys over to Shea Gilgis-Alexander to become the driver and the quarterback, so to speak, of this team. So if you're signing Schroeder to a long-term deal, how much does that delay SGA from becoming the guy? So I think these are all interesting storylines. Again, Gallo's gone. I think they trade Paul before the start of the season and they entertain offers for potentially Steven Adams or Dennis Schroeder. If nothing valuable comes out of that, then you just let both of those guys play out the final season of their contracts. You reevaluate their contract situation versus the direction you want to go with the rebuild and make offers that reflect that path. But as I mentioned before, in 2019, the idea of a rebuild was scary and nobody knew what the light at the end of the tunnel might be if the Thunder completely tore it down. And if you're a Thunder fan, I think you at least have to be excited that you have pieces in place like SGA like Baisley, like Lou Dort, to at least begin that foundation of what's to come for Thunder basketball. It is officially football season. It is officially game week. Oklahoma State Tulsa has been postponed to next weekend, so we'll talk more about the Cowboys and the Golden Hurricane next week. But this week, it's Sooner football as Oklahoma kicks off Saturday night on pay-per-view against Missouri State, a really bad team that the Sooners should completely hammer. But I'm excited to see what the new faces look like. I'm excited to see what this offense looks like, led by Spencer Rattler and how much more open maybe the offense looks than it did a year ago. A lot of questions with this Oklahoma team, but I think the expectations remain the same. Win the Big 12, get to a college football playoff scenario, and I think that's even more obtainable when you consider no Big 10, no Pac-12. It kind of seems like the Big 12 champion is going to automatically get a college football playoff bid. So once again, the Sooners are the favorite to win the conference. Should they do that, they're in the Final Four, but you've got to navigate this interesting season with a new quarterback, and here's the good thing. Lincoln Riley has put up elite numbers every year in all three seasons as a head coach with three different quarterbacks. So I'm excited to see what this thing looks like, and I'm just excited to talk football. My guest today is the host of The Rush with Teddy Lehman on Sports Talk 1400 weekdays from 2 to 6 p.m. I love talking football with this guy. Hopefully we'll get him back again throughout the season. He is Tyler McComas. What's going on today, man? It's football week. It it is football week. I'm really happy to be on this podcast, but real quick, I got to admit something to you, Colby. Okay. When you asked me to be on the podcast, I was like, cool, I'm, I'm jacked up. I'm really excited about this. And then I said, wait, is this just an excuse for him to come over to my house and do a surprise poo at my house as well? So I was a little bit worried about that. Just letting you know. So you heard that podcast episode, I guess. Oh, God, dude, I was crying laughing late last week saying and and we've all been in that spot. You know, I mean, yeah. we've all been in that spot and you did the only thing that was acceptable at the time. You just you have to do it. It's embarrassing. But what I love about it is that you actually talked about it. That That's great. And didn't like shy away from it. That's awesome. It was so bad because I, I drove to Tulsa and that's, you know, that's a decent drive. And so it's early in the day and I'm chugging coffee. And right as I'm coming into the Tulsa city limits, like it's starting starting to take effect, but it hadn't completely hit me. So I was like, I'll be okay. This isn't going to be a bad deal. And then I get to John's house and I'm not even kidding you within 30 seconds of walking in his door, 
it, it was just full-blown bubble guts, like a force of nature that was not going to be stopped. And uh, then his toilet wouldn't flush, and I was just, like, I nearly jumped out the window and said, screw this, our friendship is over, I'm just leaving it there, but I suffered through the embarrassment. Next time you watch Dumb and Dumber, well, with your with your little boy, actually, when <laughs> right. he's old enough to watch it, when uh, Harry is at Mary's house, you oh, can yeah. just point at him and say, yep, son, been there. It yeah. sucks, man. It's been not there. cool. It is not cool at all, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, look, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you had some sympathy for me because everybody else was like, "That's what you get for pooping in somebody else's house." And like, dude, it's it, it was gonna happen somewhere. I mean, I could have shit on his floor or his toilet. I mean, it, it, but it was coming out. So uh, maybe if night trips in Tulsa would have been open, you could have uh, used their bathroom in there at nine in the morning or something. I'm sure that there are certain days that they have some sort of like breakfast special, right? Like tits and yeah. eggs, oh, yeah, beginning sure. at 10 a.m. Pay a $5 cover just to use their bathroom. I would have. At that point, I would have paid probably a pretty decent fee to use (laughs) the toilet, yeah. That's awesome. I hear you, man. So I'm curious. The last few months have been pretty interesting in the sports world, and I've asked all my friends that are in the radio business and do daily-type shows, like, how has it been? And I've got mixed reviews across the board. Some people have really enjoyed, I guess, the freedoms that have come along with not necessarily having one thing to cover on a day-to-day basis. Some people have really struggled to find content. Like, how have you kind of navigated your way through all of this time? You know, oddly enough, in in terms of my show, nothing has really changed because we we made a plan when Teddy Lehman and I first started doing the show that regardless of what's going on, we're going to hammer college football and, and we're really going to hammer OU football. Like, that's what we're going to be about. That's what our show is going to do. We'll talk other things, sure. Um, we'll, we'll talk Thunder and some local stuff, but, I mean, we're really going to hammer OU football as much as possible. So we were going to do that anyway throughout the months of March, April, and May and granted there weren't a whole lot of team news coming out but there was still enough news to come out season previews um, thinking outside the box a little bit with content yeah it just it really didn't change at all for that for us that much because dude we, we were gonna hammer college football as is yeah I think more than anything it just kind of allows allows your creativity to, to go into effect yeah. as opposed to just relying on what you're watching and look I got into sports because I love talking about what we're watching on the field or on the court or whatever but I think in terms of not having that available and allowing yourself to just kind of open your mind to the different angles that you can cover whatever it is you're covering that part of it to me was really fascinating yeah I mean and and there's kind of like a no limits type of thing right like if like during just a normal year, the Thunder in the playoffs. Well, you got to hammer Thunder playoffs, Thunder playoffs, Thunder playoffs. But when there's nothing going on, you can talk about stuff that you probably never could talk about before in certain months where sports is dominating, right? You can get creative. You can do funny segments. I I thought it was a great time to try new things, see what works. If it doesn't work, then oh well. I mean, at least you tried to make something stick. I think a lot of people probably really got better and found out a lot about themselves as broadcasters throughout the last six months. I mean, I I know sales have been bad for pretty much every station out there. I'm sure pretty much every host has taken some sort of a pay cut. But I I think that if there is a silver lining to all of this, it made us expand a little bit, get out of our comfort zone and try some new things that maybe eventually worked. Yeah. And, and, you know, the interest, the other interesting part is all of the the headlines that maybe have a little bit to do with sports, but are are more, 
I guess, everyday life type headlines that have kind of made their way into sports throughout this time period. And the balance of giving those the attention that they deserve and also understanding that a lot of people turn to sports to get away from that stuff and, and sports are kind of their escape. So I, it's kind of like walking the, the tightrope, so to speak, because a lot of that stuff deserves attention. Yet at the same time, sports is supposed to be the distraction for a lot of people. Yeah, and, and you really couldn't really sit on the fence anymore with everything that was going on with the social justice issues. You kind of had to let everybody know which side you're on and what you're all about. So, yeah, I mean, it's just been – I don't know if there's been a more fascinating six-month period in sports radio history. And granted, there hasn't been very much sports on at all, which is crazy to say. So social issues, you know, ruled the day for about a three-week, four-week period. You had to address that. But you're right. It's the – you want to talk about it. You have to talk about it. You have to give it its attention. But at the same time, if you're doing a three- or four-hour radio show, you've got to supply that content to the people that just want to get away from it and just want to hear about sports. So mixing those in in the appropriate manner is a little bit tricky. It's a little bit tough. And also in a situation like that, you better have some thick skin, man, because For if sure. you talk about politics nowadays, everybody has their side. Everybody is ingrained into their side. No, not a hundred percent of people are going to agree with your opinion. You, you better be able to make your case, make it strong, and then be able to take the, the pushback that one side or the other is going to give you on certain subjects. I just kind of equate it to like a college football rivalry, right? Like the world rivalry, Right now right, is exactly. like OU Texas is every single week. Like you're on one side or the other and there's no room for, you know, standing on the fence and it, they're the rival and we're going to kick their ass on Saturday. But that's like it's every week. Yeah, I mean, and it's easy, I guess, being in a at a Norman radio station and taking the side against Mike Gundy. But what if you're what if you're at a, at a Stillwater radio station and everything Mike Gundy did this offseason? Like, you kind of got to choose, sure, right? Like, yeah. do you want to stick on the side of Oklahoma State and support that, or do you want to speak out if what you think Mike Gundy did was wrong? So when it hits you locally like we've seen around here, I think it makes it even more difficult because you can either stand up for what you believe in and walk out of the station that day and say, you know what? The fan base may be pissed off at me. The university may be pissed off at me. The head coach may be pissed off at me, but at least I said what I feel in, in my heart today on the air. So yeah. So for those folks in Stillwater, for some people in Oklahoma city that have OSU ties, I bet that situation was pretty tough as well. I, I can't imagine. Um, let's let's jump into football, though. Uh, we've, we've spent enough time on, on all that stuff, and I'm sure people are ready to hear about football since it is game week. My first question to you is, especially because you guys cover football so much, even in the offseason, like, do you have the football fever yet? Did you get the bug earlier than, than most people? Like, where are you at in terms of just your excitement that this is actually going to happen? I mean, we're recording, what, three days before kickoff, and it just doesn't feel like a game week and I'll, but I'll tell you this like I woke up today and it's rainy it's kind of nasty outside and it's a little <laughs> bit chilly and for whatever reason like today it kind of hit me like oh damn like okay I, I think that we're really going to play this Saturday it feels like football weather it's going to feel like football weather for the next two days so yeah man I, I really I, I, I have the football fever 
because I feel like once we just get a game in, once OU gets their game in, once Oklahoma State gets their game in against Tulsa and everything's okay and everything's fine, I really believe that life is going to slowly return back to normal, that people are going to see like, oh my God, we can actually play this game and actually get through the season. Everything can be fine because as far as we've seen it up to this point, Colby, we've had two weekends of college football and no massive number of cases have come from any of these games, right? Like everything's been good. Everything's been fine. And I think the more weekends we have doing that, then I I think the more people are going to be able to finally say, okay, these college kids are in a good position. We don't need a bubble. We're going to be able to play this season and everything's going to go back to normal. You know, it's so crazy because generally going into the football season, we have that long stretch throughout the month of August, especially after Big 12 media days toward the end of July, where everything's just kind of stagnant and we're craving football and we kind of have this date circled. We know it's going to happen and everything is a buildup to that opening weekend and, and Labor Day weekend and watching all the big 12 and the top teams across the country and just kind of getting that that feel for what the season is going to look like and with this i think because we've had so many other sports taking place at the same time it you just haven't had that same build i guess all the way up to the season with with no excitement anywhere else like we've all been kind of glued to if you're a baseball fan baseball's been fantastic and and with all you know the increased playoff runs that makes it interesting the nba playoffs i think are more entertaining than they've ever been with the bubble situation and the high level of play i'm i'm a big ufc guy so like i think card after card after card with the ufc has been fantastic so i haven't had that void that football usually fills by the time we get to labor day weekend but i found myself finally on monday i had my first fantasy football draft and then i had another one last night and I think doing the drafts and then hearing like Lincoln Riley's press conference, like I finally got the full blown bug of like, I'm just geeked out about this thing taking off. And then we have a couple of game cancellations. And now like deep inside, I have this fear that, you know, I, I guess they're testing again today and Friday that something's going to happen to prevent us from, right. from watching it as I finally get the, the full blown fever. Well, I mean, you, you've already got three games within the conference that have you know been pushed back or postponed or whatever, and yeah, that frightens you. But you, we're, we're just kind of trained to – there's like a series of events every single year that happens before football season, right? Like Big 12 Media Day comes in July, and you're like – okay, like we're not that close, but maybe this is the unofficial start of football season. The calendar turns to August and you're like, well, okay, like we might have football this month. Here we go. NFL preseason. You're hearing all the chatter out of this camp. Like it's this certain buildup that happens every single year. And you're right because a popular tweet after OKC got beat by Houston in game seven last week was, all right, well now it's football season because it was full on basketball season two weeks before kickoff around here last week. And now that the NBA playoffs is done, now that this fun OKC Thunder team was out, it's like, okay, we got like 10 days, but finally, here we go. We can focus all our attention, not on the NBA, but on college football. I kind of like the fact that Oklahoma State's doing their thing a week later and not because I'm, I'm happy that anybody had COVID, but I think just in terms of being able to watch Oklahoma uninterrupted and not have a distraction with the Oklahoma State game and then the same thing for Oklahoma State a week later not have the Oklahoma game as a distraction like I kind of like that the two top teams in this conference kind of have a stage to themselves I I do too especially what OSU's playing Tulsa at 11 a.m. I guess on the 19th of September I think that'll be awesome especially because man like all the well I mean obviously not TCU uh, and not Oklahoma State of course as well but and I guess Baylor and Louisiana Tech now are pushed back too 
But this was going to be a fun week to watch the Big 12. But that bye week on the 19th was kind of brutal games-wise. And I don't expect Tulsa to go to Stillwater and give Oklahoma State all they want or anything. But you're right, just from a just from a viewer, from a fan, just having them play at 11 a.m. and getting to watch the two in-state schools and, like you said, the two best teams in the Big 12 this year, That's I, I agree with that. Getting to watch them on separate weeks is, I, I think, is kind of awesome too. Like taking COVID out of the equation, because we obviously understand that that could, that could play a significant role in somebody making a, a championship run or not. I, to me, it's Oklahoma, then Oklahoma State, and then I feel like there's a gap between those two and everybody else. How, how do you view the conference this year? I, I view it exactly like that. I view it Oklahoma's there, um, Oklahoma State's too, and then I, I'm really flirting with the idea of putting Iowa State three just because I trust them defensively, and man, I, I really like Brock Purdy. I like Brock Purdy a lot. I, I think that he's you know, with all due respect to Seneca Wallace and Sage Rosenfels, maybe going to end up being the best quarterback that Iowa State has ever had. But here's here's my one issue. Here's my one issue with Iowa State. Here's my one issue with Texas. Here's my one issue with Oklahoma State as well. I can't necessarily trust any of those teams. And, and I understand that somebody's kind of finished second in this conference, but can I trust Oklahoma State to beat OU this year? They're going to have to at some point, either in Norman or in Arlington, to win the Big 12 title this year. Can I trust Iowa State? It seems like every time Iowa State has a big game, maybe they go down to Austin. Um, last year when they hosted Oklahoma State in Ames, I think is a perfect example. It's like when the stage is big for Iowa State and they're expected to win, they have all this momentum they crap all over themselves and play a terrible football game. And then I don't even need to tell you why I don't trust Texas at this point, because we're in the decade of sex still with them. And I can't trust that uh, with their playmakers, with their running backs, even with their defense, that they're going to be the second best team in the conference. But that's a long way to say that. Yeah, I think it's OU. I think it's OSU with the fire, the power that they have offensively. And then I think you're talking about Iowa state and Texas, kind of in that next pack i'm with you and i like iowa state third as well texas to me with two new coordinators and just the unknown of of i think in a lot of areas but it kind of felt like tom herman just just put all the blame on the coordinators and brought in two new guys to maybe put a band-aid on a much bigger issue i have a hard time jumping in on texas I do too. And I know that Todd Orlando had a really bad year last year, but if there's one defensive coordinator in this conference, that's been able to figure out a way to slow down OU. And this goes back to him being the DC at Houston for the 2016 opener. For whatever reason, Todd Orlando's found a way to slow down OU better than anybody else in the conference. And now they bring in Chris Ash from Rutgers um, I mean, he wasn't successful as a head coach. I, I won't put a whole lot of blame on him because of that tough job that he was in. But I'm starting to think, Colby, that the guy they fired is actually better than the guy that they are bringing in. So, and, and of course, we remember who their OC is. And it seemed like more times than not, Oklahoma State had a problem with his play calling or what he was doing offensively. So, yeah, I'm with you. Like, I, I think the overall problem there is Tom Herman. And he just fired the OC and the DC and some other position coaches just to say, well, that's on them, not on me. When, yeah, I just, I don't think Tom Herman's a very good coach. I think he's the real problem there. Let's talk OU. Spencer Rattler's the starting quarterback. I talked about this on the podcast about a week ago. 
I thought it was going to be Spencer Rattler. It seemed like, I think just given his skill set, that you had to at least give him an opportunity, even if you thought this was a, a close race. I had people swearing to me that are close to the program that this was legitimately a race, and I had a hard time believing it, but these all these same people, I mean, it, during the Baker-Trevor Knight deal, they, they were like, no, it's Baker. During the Kyler Murray-Austin Kendall deal, they were like, no, it's Kyler Murray. So they weren't people that bought into previous quarterback races, and that's why I thought it was interesting that they were saying, this is a real race. Did you believe it was a real race? Because I had a hard time ever thinking that, that Tanner Mordecai legitimately had a chance, barring some sort of injury. I, I never bought for one second at any point that this was going to be any sort of a race. I mean, Lincoln tipped his hand in the Peach Bowl last year. That's what I, I mean, thought, They're yeah. getting killed by LSU. Yeah, I mean, Tanner Mordecai is the backup quarterback, right? Th then why wasn't he the first quarterback that came in the game? I, I think Lincoln Riley was sending a message to all OU fans saying, look, I know this is bad. I know this is really embarrassing, but here's a glimpse into the future of what we have at quarterback. Like the decision was was already was already made. That that's a calculated move by Lincoln Riley. So no, I, I I never thought that it was a race at any point. And and this too, Tanner Mordecai. I mean, we really don't know if he's going to be healthy or not for this Saturday's game against Missouri State. He missed like 80% of fall camp, so there was really no time for him, to my knowledge for him to actually be in a stiff competition with Spencer Rattler. I, I liken it a little bit to like drafting a quarterback in the first round of the NFL draft. Like maybe he's not the best guy on your roster, but at some point you have to start him several games just to see what you have. And that's kind of the same thing with the number one overall quarterback in a recruiting class. You're right. Even if it's close, Spencer Rattler's going to win that job. Tanner Mordecai would have had to outperform him by leaps and bounds, I think, to get that job because everybody just already assumed that it was going to be Rattler. Like, yeah, I, I think that decision was made like – I don't think that decision was made in 2020. I think that decision was made in like 2019 that Rattler was going to be the starter. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the Kyler Murray thing. When you have a guy that has a skill set that's clearly – has a, a much greater upside than the other guy, you almost have to make them show that they're not the guy in order to, to pass the baton to, to the second dude, whoever that is, Austin Kendall, Tanner Mordecai, or whatever the name is. Yeah, and it, it's funny that you you heard from somebody that it was a close battle, and they didn't really indicate that in the past. Because I've had I've heard situations in the past where people close to the program are saying, look, I think Kyla Murray and Austin Kendall are both going to split reps in game one. Like, how silly does that sound now, right? Like, seriously? Kyla Murray, the number one overall draft pick, and Austin Kendall, who kind of stunk last year at West Virginia and got replaced. So, it, you know, I, I have a hard time believing, like, anything that comes out about the quarterbacks at OU, like how close the race is, like, I, I honestly have a hard time believing it <laughs> because I've been led to believe every year that there's a quarterback battle when in no way do I think that that was actually the case in a lot of those years. Yeah, none of those none of those ever made me question who I thought was going to be the starter because it just seemed like a no-brainer. And, and even last year, there were reports that – both backups with Spencer Rattler and Tanner Mordecai at times looked better in the offense in practice settings than Jalen Hurts did. And I think when you looked at the offensive line issues that they had going into this year, last year and the inexperience, it just made all the sense in the world that you had a veteran guy, a tough guy, a guy that could take a beating, a guy that could run the football, kind of that, that panic button type of guy at quarterback rather than an inexperienced guy who you had no idea what, what they're going to look like under pressure. 
Yeah, and, and Lincoln Riley would never admit this publicly, obviously. But if you figured out a way to put some truth serum in him, I, I think like the plan is Spencer Rattler this year, Spencer Rattler in 2021, and then maybe he takes a leap to the NFL after three years on campus. And then after that, it's the Caleb Williams show. But And I think that regardless if Spencer leaves after three years or if he leaves after four years, whatever, like I think the, the clear plan right now, and I'm sure that they've even told Caleb Williams this, is that Rattler's the guy for two to three years, and then, bam, they go into Caleb Williams, another number one quarterback. So, I mean, and I'll hear, we'll hear next year that there's some competition on campus. We'll hear that there's some competition in 2022. But it's going to go from Spencer Rattler to Caleb Williams, barring something barring something crazy. That's, that's just what's going to happen, I believe. How interesting is this eligibility freeze? I, I mean, I, I think it's really, really interesting for a lot of teams. I, I don't think it affects OU all that much, really. Like, maybe they could get a guy like Trey Brown to come back in 2021, which would help. But the, the one that I'm really, really wondering about, to keep it in the Big 12 here, and at first I kind of just laughed about it, but the more I think about it, I really think it's serious. Sam Ellinger is a nice quarterback. He is. He's he's really progressed as a as a passer. He does a really good job of not making turnovers, but uh, he's not going to have that much of an NFL future. He, he he's just not an NFL guy. So, I don't think it's necessarily crazy to think that a guy like Sam Ellinger, a a really big name could benefit from this role and come back in in 2021 because I, I don't see him I just don't see him as a top two round quarterback maybe not even a top three round quarterback like his best years as a football player are going to come at the University of Texas and not in the NFL so it's just not totally crazy to think that he could take advantage of that role and though we think that he's going to be gone that Ellinger's actually back at Austin in 2021. So from that aspect right there, I think it's fascinating, but I really don't think it's going to affect OU that much. And you may disagree with this one, but obviously Chuba and Tylen Wallace are going to go to the NFL draft after this year. I, I don't think it'll help out Oklahoma State maybe a little bit more than OU, but I don't think it drastically improves them either. They'll have a couple guys, but I just don't think a, a ton of guys would come back for, for OSU. The only thing I think it really impacts for maybe Oklahoma and Oklahoma State is is the ability to allow position battles to to fully develop throughout the season as opposed yeah. to maybe pulling the reins back on a guy that, that you want around a little bit longer. Because if, if you're not losing a year, it makes all the sense in the world that you get guys opportunities early in the season. And maybe by mid-year, you do have some changing you know, starters at safety or corner or wherever we're talking about a position of need. Yeah, I, I look at a guy like Theo Howard for OU. Um, you know, obviously he had that Achilles injury earlier this year. Now, I, I mean, he, he'll be able to come back to OU in 2021, and that could be a pretty big target for them if he continues to improve. Caleb Kelly, I think that it's it's kind of up to him. Does does he want to rehab one more time? Does he want to come back? It gives him an opportunity to come back. But I, I think you're right about those position battles. It's it's almost instead of trying to figure out who we want in a one, two month time frame, we now get like an additional 12 months to figure out what our future is at certain positions. And you kind of nailed it with Sam Ellinger. I'm, I'm with you completely. In fact, I would be shocked if Sam Ellinger wasn't the starting quarterback at Texas next season, because unless he makes the jump that he made from his freshman to his sophomore year this season, 
uh, looking back at what he was a year ago, I, I can't imagine that he's even a drafted quarterback in the NFL. And and he even said his dream was to win it at, at Texas. So right now he's he's living his dream. And and if they fall short again this year, I can only imagine he wants that opportunity to to bring Texas back to the top and. If they don't win it this year, I think it's going to be viewed as a massive disappointment in terms of his era of Texas football. But I, I think with the with the freeze, what this does is it has a giant impact on the 2021 season because I think there are a lot of guys that will graduate this year that look at what their draft position may be and they have that extra year to do, you know, maybe, maybe they're a grad transfer, go wherever they want. I think you're going to see a lot of guys in that situation come back a year from now and maybe, you know, kind of play the free agent game. Yeah, I, I think that that could definitely happen. And, and obviously what's going to happen in the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, you know? I mean, I mean, we're kind of still waiting to see what happens in those conferences in terms of maybe teams leaving the Big Ten, maybe teams leaving the Pac-12 and transferring somewhere else. We really haven't seen that in large numbers up to this point, but I still th- we think we're all with the Pac-12 still in flux, the Big Ten still in flux. I'm not going to rule it out, man, that maybe a guy like Trey Sermon says, you know what? I tried this thing at Ohio State. It didn't get off the ground. I'm going to go to somewhere in the Big 12 and the SEC and try it one more time as a running back somewhere else. I, I think that, that, that could definitely happen. Speaking of the running back situation, I think toward the end of last year, we were all looking at Oklahoma's situation, and, and we all thought, what a great problem to have. You have Ramondre Stevenson, you have Trey Sermon, you have Kennedy Brooks. All of those guys are super talented. I always felt like Kennedy Brooks was the best of that group. He opts out, Stevenson suspended, Sermon leaves, and now Oklahoma's in a position where they've got to find somebody to take the reins at that spot. I'll say this, I think the running back position is probably easier to replace than any other position on the roster, and certainly there are really talented guys on the roster. Oklahoma's never going to have guys that aren't talented at the running back position. However, we're talking about inexperience and and just, you know, getting into the fire and holding on to the football and a lot of the things that we maybe take for granted with experience at that position how do you view the running back spot going into this year? By the way, um, how about the how things have changed so much for DeMarco Murray, who's still pretty much new into coaching, right? <laughs> right. He, he thought that this this year was basically going to be like a redshirt year for him. He was just going to sit back and learn. Man, I, I, I got Kennedy Brooks. I got Trey Sermon. I got Ramondre Stevenson. Like, I'm going to have to recruit a little bit, sure. I need to get Kamar Wheaton and Norman. But, man, for the most part, I can just kind of sit back, and those guys can do what they do, and we'll be pretty good at running back. But now it's like he kind of has to hit the ground running. He's He's got a lot of young players in the backfield, which, by the way, that I'll say that kind of the reports out of that is that DeMarco Murray is an upgrade over Jay Bulware at the running back position. And some people are saying that it's not even close. So that's pretty good news for OU fans. But in terms of the running back position, man, I I totally agree with you. And especially in this offense, you can replace guys. I like the reason why I think that this running back room is going to be fine is like the same reason why Kennedy Brooks emerged just a couple of years ago is the offensive line. So good. The passing game is so good that, I mean, all you have to do, you don't have to be a superstar to excel in this offense. And I don't think Kennedy Brooks, even though the numbers were great, I don't think that he was a superstar. I kept seeing the stat when he opted out that like, wow, Kennedy Brooks led the nation in yards before first contact. It was three yards a carry. I'm like, that's more of an offensive line stat to me than it is a Kennedy Brooks stat. So somebody's going to emerge 
And I think somebody's going to emerge as a running back that maybe has over a thousand yards this year. And the guy that I'm looking at is Seth McGowan. What I've heard out of him is he is the next star at running back for OU. Marcus Major's a good player. He's very capable. We've seen TJ Pledger before. But Seth McGowan, when this team starts to play its big football games in October, I truly believe that he's going to be the running back on this team. Um, you know, I, you know, TJ Pledger, I see him more as a as a third down back. I think Marcus Major is a good change up back as well. And I actually think that TJ Pledger is probably going to get the first carry on Saturday against Missouri State because you know how that works, right? Lincoln will say, well, he's just earned it up to this point. <laughs> right. Well, maybe he's just earned it up to this point, but he's not the best running back on this team. Seth McGowan is. And when this team gets into conference play, I think that's who you're going to see. I think when the season ended last year, we, we obviously understood they had terrific running backs. There were problems on the offensive line. It wasn't as good as it's been in past seasons. And I think we all just kind of expected through the progression of things, it was going to be better going into this year. But you don't have spring football. You've been limited in, in everything that you've been able to do in the offseason. What's the realistic expectation on how improved the offensive line is? Well, I mean, you've been around here long enough. You've heard Bill Bedenbo talk. Yeah. Bill Bedenbo never really says anything positive or <laughs> good or raves about his O-line. Basically, like, and, and, and that's funny, like, it goes down to Lincoln, too. Like, the O-line has been the best position group on this team for, like, four or five years now. And they basically take any chance to say, well, yeah, they got to do a lot better. They got to play a lot better. Even when, they're, like, they're at elite level. Well, yeah, but they've got to play a lot better. Yet the defense holds somebody to under 38 points and everybody's raving on the coaching staff about how well they played. So the standard and the expectation is just different with the offensive line than maybe any other position that they have there outside of quarterback. The fact that Bill Biedenboe last week was raving about his depth, was raving about the frontline starters that he has, I mean, it makes me believe that you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're going to win the Joe Moore award again this year, Colby, but I think that definitely they're the best offensive line in the conference. And I think that the expectation is that they're going to be a top three, top three offensive line in college football wow. this year. I think that's very realistic with what they have coming back and just all the quality depth they have this year. No matter what your opinion was of Jalen Hurts a year ago, I think there was a group of people that wanted to see Spencer Rattler maybe get some opportunities, especially late in the season. I always felt like the offensive line was the reason that maybe they were hesitant to ever give him that opportunity. Again, Jalen Hurts is a, a big guy. You know that he can take the, the physical beating that is college football, especially when you don't have terrific starting tackles that are, are terrific pass blockers. That's that kind of plays a big role into you know what Spencer Rattler is going to be capable of this year. So, uh, to me, it's a really interesting storyline, and and just to hear that expectation of them. I mean, if if in fact they are that good, then once again, Oklahoma's probably going to have the top offense in the country. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the expectation, right? And and that goes down to Spencer Rattler too, because that's really the million dollar question with this team. I think the defense is going to be better. But how good is Spencer Rattler? Can he be? Can he be at the level of the previous three guys? And you know what? He if he's not, 
then that's going to be labeled as a Spencer Rattler problem and not a Lincoln Riley problem. Like, like, like think about yeah. it, right? Yeah. Like any, every quarterback in the country wants to come here and play in the system. You've got the best skill players. You've got the best offensive line. You've got the best play caller, the best offensive mind. Like everything is there for you as a quarterback to succeed as a, as a player. So if Spencer Rattler comes in this year and there's a noticeable drop-off and he costs him a couple football games, then I think the story locally and nationally is, well, Spencer Rattler is just not that good. Like in any other situation, if the quarterback struggles, the OC is going to be on the hot seat. The head coach might get fired at the end of the season. But Lincoln has built up so much equity as an offensive mind that the next quarterback, be it Spencer Rattler or whoever that struggles, it's going to be a quarterback problem and not a head coach problem. So, and, and, and that's why I think Spencer Rattler will be good this year. And that's why I think, I think he will be good enough this year is how can you not succeed in this offense? I mean, I'm not saying that just anybody could go up there and throw up numbers, but if you're just a pretty good quarterback and you're in this situation playing against those defenses in the big 12, you're going to throw up some pretty good numbers. So that's what I expect to happen this year. I love this stat, and this is Lincoln Riley as a head coach and what the offenses have looked like the last three years with three different quarterbacks. In 2017, it's Baker Mayfield. They averaged 45.1 points per game. That was third in the country, 579 yards, which was first in the country. A year later, a new quarterback, Kyler Murray, 48 points a game, which was first in the country, 570 yards per game, which was first in the country. And then we obviously understand Jalen Hurts, from an arm standpoint, is nowhere near as talented as Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, but... Jalen Hurts, 42 points per game, sixth in the country, 537 yards per game, third in the country. Even with a guy that is significantly yep. less talented in the passing game than the previous two, they're still top 10 in both of those categories, and they were still a problem. And there were times that the offensive line wasn't dominant like it had been in the past. There were turnover issues with Jalen Hurts at times, and they still put up enormous numbers. And, and they really had to change kind of their offensive philosophy, didn't they? With Absolutely. Jalen Hurts, and yeah. they still had those numbers, you know? I mean, Jalen Hurts was a one read guy if the first read wasn't open man he was tucking it and running it i mean if you if you go back and watch that bedlam game last year it was just crazy to see what their offensive game plan was just to basically you know quarterback run game just run it right at osu like the final score was 34 to 16 normally that's a score in bedlam that you see midway through the second quarter i mean they really had to change their offense quite a bit and yet they were still able to throw up those unbelievable numbers and oh by the way jalen hurts was still the runner-up in the heisman trophy so yeah i mean all of that just goes back to if spencer rattler is half as good as what he's built up to be then those numbers aren't going to change that much Th those numbers are going to look pretty similar to what they have just my question is how is he going to be able to take care of the football and is he going to be able to take care of the football in big games because that was the one big hit on Jalen Hurts last year hell that was really even the one big hit on Kyla Murray there were a lot of games where he had two turnovers in a football game can Spencer Rattler in big moments and big games not have the backbreaking turnover not have the backbreaking interception like Jalen Hurts did at times last year. I'm not worried about the final numbers. They'll be there. They'll be fine. Show me what the turnovers numbers look like this year, and I feel like I can tell you if OU wins the Big 12 or not. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain expectation, especially out of, as, a tr as a redshirt freshman, there are going to be turnovers. You just don't want them in those critical yeah. moments and, and the decision-making in game-winning moments. 
has to be good. But going back to the, the Spencer Rattler thing in general, like this is the kind of guy I think you need when you have the pressure that is going to be put on an Oklahoma quarterback following what Baker Mayfield did, following what Kyler Murray did, following what Jalen Hurts did. Like when you look at these preseason Heisman polls, it basically says like Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, insert OU quarterback name here. Like that's just the level of expectation no matter who you are. If you're the quarterback quarterback at Oklahoma, you're expected to be one of the best in college football. You're expected to lead this offense to be one of the best in college football. And I think you need a guy with somewhat of a, a swagger and a certain amount of arrogance to to not only go into that situation feeling confident, but to excel in that sort of situation. Yeah, I, I don't know if you watched the Netflix series that he was on a couple of years ago. I did. QB1, I watched yeah. it from start to finish. Yeah. And, man, I, I came away with that at the time saying, I mean, this kid's got confidence in himself, but, man, is he a little bit of an arrogant kid, you know? And, and man, that, that's, a, that's a high school kid. That's a five-star. So he is definitely allowed to mature and change. Lincoln Riley said that he has matured. But yeah, I mean, watching watching that, it was it was pretty apparent and pretty evident that he was going to get humbled at some point and he needed to mature a little bit just as a kid. So hopefully he's done that. But you're right, man, because I can't think and maybe you can. I can't think of another college football quarterback in recent memory that's entered into this entered into a season as a first year starter with more pressure on him than Spencer Rattler because the bar's been set. And the bar's not moving just because they have a redshirt freshman quarterback and a first-year starter. The bar's the same, and the bar is as high as it's ever been. And if he doesn't live up to that, then there's going to be a lot of groans from people around here in the state. So good luck to him. I hope it works out. But, guys, he entering this year with a ton of pressure. Yeah, the only guy I, th- I can think of is Tua, and and you know that's also yeah. he he had that national championship moment, so it's not quite the same situation. But he was going into his first full year as a starting quarterback and and playing full time. But I like the arrogance. I, I know that you want to channel that in the right direction, and and maybe you don't want to see him be as you know out there as as maybe he was. And there's going to have to be a certain amount of leadership that that accompanies that arrogance, but. If you don't have that level of arrogance going into this situation with the pressure that is on an OU quarterback, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's it, it's what made Baker Mayfield great. Like, he had this ultimate belief in himself that he was going to accomplish anything that was thrown in his path. And I think the now the bar at that position at Oklahoma has been lifted so much that I like having a guy that is, is that degree of self-confident, and we can call it arrogance or whatever, but again, it just has to be channeled maybe in the right way in terms of the leadership that, that accompanies that. Yeah, and, and that's my only concern because I, I, I'm with you too. I, I want somebody that has enough confidence to be able to mentally handle the situation that he's in. You know, and, and obviously we know about Baker. Don't have to rehash that. But even though Baker was a little bit arrogant as a player, Man, that entire team fed off him. That entire team fed off him from his first year on campus back in 2014. Yeah, he was he was he was super confident, maybe super cocky at times, but I really feel like the rest of that football team, they they liked that, they dug that and they fed off that. So Spencer Rattler is going to be very similar to that, absolutely. But does the entire team like how do they view that, right? Do they view that as, "Oh yeah, that's our dude." 
He's got the confidence. I want to follow this guy. I trust this guy in big situations. Or do they kind of just roll their eyes and say, eh, whatever? Well, I, I think that kind of depends on what happens early in the season, right? If Spencer Rattler backs this, backs his attitude up and lights the world on fire for the first few games, and I definitely think that this team's going to say, all right, yeah, let's roll. I like this kid. He's young. He's a little bit cocky. He can play. I think that he can lead our football team. So I, I think that it, it all depends on what happens early on in the season. And the cockiness is good, man. I'm with you. But I think we're going to find out a lot about Spencer Rattler the first time that he faces adversity. Because adversity is going to set in this year, right? I, maybe it's in Ames, Iowa. Maybe it's in Dallas. Maybe it's against OSU and Norman this year. But adversity is going to set in. And if his confidence gets kicked down a notch or two, is he still the same level of player? No doubt. One of my favorite things a year ago doing postgame shows was looking at the box score and whether it was the running back position or the receiver position or the tight end position, whatever, like I'm circling names and I'm like, this guy needs more touches. This guy needs more touches. This guy needs more touches. Like Oklahoma is in such an awesome position where they are so loaded at the skill positions that, that literally like I'm, I, you're, you're finding things to like, not, not maybe criticize, but question about the team and, and what can they improve on? And, and almost every week it was like, well, I would like to see them give this guy a few more touches or get this guy more involved in the game plan. And again, I think going into this year, the offense is going to look a lot more like it did with Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. It's go, the ball's going to be spread out more than it was a year ago. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what that distribution looks like to all of these incredible pass catchers they have. Which, by the way, that was the whole Mark Andrews thing, right, for like two or three years. It's like, when are they going to throw Andrews the <laughs> yeah. ball? My God, when are they throw Andrews the ball? And they finally did in 2017. And all he did was win the damn John Mackey Award for the best tight end in all of college football. So, yeah, that is my favorite part of postgame show as well. But, yeah, I mean, the, the skill talent this year, and you, you don't have a C.D. Lamb in the lineup just yet, but we know that somebody's going to emerge as a pretty good player. I tend to think that it's going to be Theo Wees, the true sophomore. Um, I, I really like what I saw from him out of the Baylor game. I, I think that he's going to be your number one consistent target with Charleston Rambo being like your burner deep threat on the outside. Like, I, I think that that's the way that the wide receiver position is going to work. But this is a maybe not a unique year for the OU pass catchers. But I really like what they have this year just because they have a bunch of like Swiss Army knife type of players, right? Jeremiah Hall can block, but he can also run, but he can also catch the ball out of the backfield. And then they've got like a Braden Willis who's probably not going to average six to seven catches per game. But, boy, he's maybe their most athletic player on offense. He can catch the ball. He can run the ball. He can block. He can do all these different things. Then you have a guy like Austin Stockner. When a lot of the attention is going to go to your wide receivers, you've got a massive dude, you know, lining up in a slot that is going to be a matchup problem, who I think is going to lead the team in touchdown receptions this year. So, yeah, there, there, there's not a C.D. Lamb on this team just yet. There's not a first-round draft pick at wide receiver, I don't think. But they've just got so many different types of pieces that are really talented, really athletic, that are just going to be a total pain in the ass to try to game plan for every single week. It, it's just not – I mean, you're right. It's not going to be a one-guy type of offense. I mean, I think from a week-to-week basis, you may see in a 10-game schedule – Maybe four to five different guys have the most catches in a game. Maybe even more than that. Yeah. 
And and that's without Hazelwood and, and Bridges to start the season. I mean, I think we expect yeah. both of those guys to be in the mix at some point, but like those guys are incredibly talented as well. And and when you get the full arsenal out there, I mean that that goes back to what, what my point was and what you were just saying. Like it could be almost a different guy every week for the entire season. Yeah, I mean, not to mention Drake Stoops, who could have a good this year. Not to mention Marvin Mims, a true freshman that they like quite a bit. It's just I, I, I think when it's all said and done, I, I do really think that Theo Wees is going to emerge as a number one receiver. But, man, I just – I think that this is going to be as spread out of a season as we've seen under Lincoln Riley. I really do. Wees was the guy a year ago, I'm with you, that, like, in his limited opportunities, every time he was in the game, I just feel like he stood out to me. Yeah, I mean, he, he really he, – he just looks the part athletically – didn't really look like a freshman a year ago. And now just with the other guys out and now the wide receiver core depth wise kind of taking a hit this offseason. I just think it's allowed him to kind of just instantly be that guy. It's not waiting for Theo Wees to emerge. It's like, Theo, we need you right now to emerge. Like we kind of don't have a choice. Like you've got to be one of our top two guys at wide receiver or maybe our passing game struggles this year. So maybe like that added pressure on him helps him out this year. But I expect him to put up um, him and Charleston Rambo in the first two, three weeks of the season. I think that they're going to make, you know, kind of the proclamation that, hey, we're we're the top two pass catchers. And that's just kind of how it's going to be. Here's where I need you to help me out because I don't know where to set the bar for my expectation of the defense. They were obviously improved a year ago. There were a lot of areas that you could just visibly see they were better in, uh, despite what whatever the numbers said. I, I, don't, I have a hard time, I guess, getting a, a good feel for where I think they're going to be, especially because there are so many moving parts. Jalen Redmond just opts out. Ronnie Perkins is out for the first part of the season. I think the Caleb Kelly loss from a leadership standpoint was enormous. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of what this group is going to be. So I do a radio show with Teddy Lehman every day. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to defense and especially OU defense. He really believes that this defense is going to be better than it was last year. And I, and I know that that's kind of hard to believe losing Kenneth Murray, losing Neville Gallimore up front. I mean, they haven't had a player to the level of Kenneth Murray in several, several years defensively. He even goes as far to say that he thinks the linebacker position as a whole will be better without Kenneth Murray just because those guys that were raw a year ago have really developed and are going to turn into pretty good players. Uh, Nick Benito is a guy that I really like. Nick Benito got the interception last year against Baylor to win that football game. And I just feel like ever since then, he's got a new level of confidence playing this game. And I feel like his career is like really going to take off after he made that one big play at Baylor. He's just got this confidence. He's, he's got the skill, talent, like everything. Like, I think he's going to take off this year. Same, same thing for Deshaun White at middle linebacker. Um, same thing for David Uwebu. You know, um, I heard Teddy talking about this, is that, you know, Kenneth Murray was a big college linebacker last year. He was a big dude. But David Uwebu, like, dwarfs him in size. That, that, like, that's the type of guy that we're talking about. So, finally, for the first time, this OU defense has guys that, like, look like legitimate top-flight Division One football players coming off the bus. Like, you're not going to see a defense anymore that's undersized and small. I think you're going to see a front seven that's really athletic, really big, and can really get after the run game and the quarterback. So... I mean, it, it's even crazy for me to say, but I'm really starting to have the opinion 
that by the end of the season, yeah, this defense is going to be better than it was a year ago. I still think that they're going to struggle at safety. I still think corner is going to be a little bit of an issue at times. But if you just want to talk about D-line and linebacker, I, I really feel like, and I think that the coaching staff feels like this too, they got a chance to be better than they were last year and maybe the best that they've been in quite some time. Are the JUCO DTs the, the number ones going into the year? Perion Winfrey, yes. Um, heard really good things coming out of him from camp, and there's a lot of pressure on him, you know, because they're kind of thin at that tackle position, so they needed Perion Winfrey to come in, stay healthy, and really look the part. And by all accounts, he has. Now, maybe that's coach speak. I guess we'll figure out early on the season. But in terms of just a plug-and-play guy, a guy that they need in that middle of the defensive line, it sounds like they they did just about as good as they could have done in the recruiting game this year with Perry on Winfrey. You mentioned the safeties potentially being better. Like, if they have more than two guys, that, that kind of automatically means they're better, right? Right, yeah. I mean, basically, uh, DeLaron Turner-Yale needs to have his breakout year. Same thing with Pat Fields. I mean, they, I mean, there's no other way to say it, right? I mean, they got embarrassed against LSU in the Peach Bowl last year. It, it was a really bad day for them. I know that they were put in a really tough situation against the best collegiate offense I've ever seen with my own eyes. I mean, LSU was incredible last year, but they've, they just, they've got to do better assignment wise. They got to do better in the run game. They got to do better in the pass game. Like I still think safety is the Achilles heel of not only this entire defense, but this entire team. But if they are better, if they are just a little bit better then this defense, I think is it's almost a lock to be better than it was a year ago just the guy that i really worry about is buki i mean you've watched buki he just for what he was built up to be coming in um he's been a disappointment up to this point and i i guess that he's your starter at nickel so i just i, I don't think that there's any way to feel good about buki being your starting nickel this year but that's that's how it's going to roll out at least to start the season. It's crazy with him because I feel like he sees the game so well and and he puts himself in position to make big plays. It just there are there are times that he's not physical enough to make those plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's just too small and that's like the one thing that this new defensive staff came in and said when they got here is like yeah, what's up with all these 5-9 corners? What's up with these tiny safeties that they have? They want to get bigger and more physical on defense, and they've done that up to this point, just not at, not at safety, not, not just yet. And there is a part of me that feels really bad for Buki because before he even played it down at OU, before he even started his true freshman season, which put him in a tough spot, like Mike Stoops is going around to luncheons talking to fans, talking to the media, and saying, like, I see, like, Roy Williams when I see this kid. Like, dude, really? Like, you're throwing, like, Roy Williams' name out to this kid that hasn't even played a down for you yet? So I think the expectations were just, they were unreal, they were unfair, and a couple of guys on the coaching staff put that on him, and it was just unrealistic expectations that he's failed to live up to at this point. So I, I do feel bad for him in that aspect. I remember hearing somebody say that he could potentially be the best player on the defense as a true freshman. God, see, I mean, and maybe that came from the mouths of one of the coaches, but that's just not, it's not fair. And when fans hear that, they buy into that. Yeah. And as media members, we talk about it all the time. Like, oh my God, is there a possibility he could be the best player next year so yeah i mean he hasn't had a good career the last time we saw him 
was the biggest bonehead play that I've ever seen in a football game when he got ejected in the Peach Bowl. But damn, his his expectations were just unrealistic coming in here. I remember going into that that game a year ago against LSU thinking it's already going to be a massive uphill climb to stop that offense and slow down that passing game considering what the OU secondary had looked like all year long. And, and even if Parnell Motley was able to, in some way, neutralize Jamar Chase, you're still talking about matchups across the board that heavily favored LSU. And then when the Turner yell, uh, was it an injury? Like a, I, I can't remember the, the exact injury, but when he was ruled out for that game, I went from saying, here's how Oklahoma could potentially have a chance in this game to this could get really, really ugly. Because all year long, we only saw two safeties, and that was it. And there were times that yeah. Turner Yell and Pat Fields looked hurt in games. There were times that they looked completely gassed, and they were still never taken off the field. I think they led the defense in snaps a season ago, those two players. And so when you're going to take away a guy that's that's literally played almost every snap at that position the entire year and put somebody in that has basically not played against the best offense in college football, they were going to expose that over and over and over, and, and we saw them do it, and it, it just got so ugly. Yeah, out of, out of all the OU football games I've ever watched, there's only been two FBS versus FBS teams that I've ever watched where I said, wow, that team legitimately, if they wanted to, could have scored over 100 points today. One was OU and Texas A&M in 2003. Yeah. We all know about the 77 nothing yeah. game. And the other one was, yeah, at the Peach Bowl when LSU put up 63 and could have put up over 100 on that OU defense that day. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, you had guys like Woody Washington having to come in against the Blitnikoff winner and, I, I, you know, just against all that talent that they had. It was really kind of unfair for, for a kid like him. But, yeah, I just remember sitting there at halftime of that game saying, like, do we really have to do this? Do we really have to play the second half? LSU doesn't want to play the second half. I know OU doesn't want to play the second half. <laughs> and everybody that's watching doesn't want to watch the second half. Like, we, do we really, really have to do this? So that's a good call on your part. You, I, I didn't see that coming. Maybe I was a little bit naive, but – God, that was a disastrous day in Atlanta. Wow. Well, I think we were all we all understood that it was going to be a, an uphill climb anyway, right? I mean, I think everybody understood that LSU was was a monster, and maybe nobody gave them enough credit for how good they were on the defensive side of the football. But we were all kind of laying out the plan, like you got to keep the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands, you got to have long extended drives, you have to wear out the LSU defense, you have to have a heavy run attack, and. You know, all these things that, you know, kind of like the Kansas State game plan every year that they seem to have success with against Oklahoma. When you're playing the superior team, the more explosive team, you do everything you can to limit that offense in terms of the snaps that they have, time of possession, from gaining that sort of momentum throughout the course of a game. And as soon as as soon as that injury occurred, I'm just like, I, they're too smart. I've watched them too many times take advantage of the weak link on the other side of the football and when you have a guy that's literally not played all year in your starting lineup against all of those dudes who are NFL talents, I mean, there were like, what, four pass catchers plus Edward yep. Solaire out of the backfield that are NFL skill position players? It, it just, it literally went from, I don't think they're going to win, but this is the path that they could win to like, I, I just don't see any way that this thing is close. I, I feel like there are a lot of people around here saying, well, Lincoln's got something up his sleeve. Lincoln, I don't know, man. I just kind of like Lincoln in this spot right here. He's gonna, he's got something for LSU right here. And then OU goes three and outs. LSU goes right down the field and scores. And it just kind of felt like it was an uphill battle from from there. So, I mean, it, it it is embarrassing to give up that many points. 
maybe not as much shame seeing as LSU did what they did to Clemson last year. But like, that's kind of the overall thing, right? Is, well, how close is OU to finally winning one of those playoff games? How close is OU to winning a national championship? There's no shame in losing to LSU last year. That's a great football team. One of the best I think we've ever seen in the past 20 years, but depth that's where OU has to get better. Depth on defense. Yeah, it sucks that you missed this, uh, one of your best players on the defensive line. Yeah, it sucks that DeLaren Turner-Yale was out for that game as well. Yeah, it sucks that Buki got ejected from that game. But, man, if you want to be a program that's one of the two or three best in college football and can win a national championship, you got to be able to have guys in the two deep that can step in and still play pretty good football for you. And we found out that OU's not – they're not ready to do that just yet. They're not at that point. I mean, they've got good 11 starters, but they're two deep guys. I mean, you take a pretty big drop once you throw those guys in the game, and that's not the case at Ohio State, Alabama, and uh, Clemson. I love that the expectation every year is not only just get to the college football playoff, but be competitive with the best teams in college football. I mean, that's what it should be for any blue blood university. And and so while I think we can all recognize the incredible job that Lincoln Riley has done, while we can all recognize the incredible job that Alex, Alex Grinch did last year from what he inherited, there's still a, another level that I think Oklahoma needs to achieve in terms of being in the same breath with an LSU a year ago, an Alabama, a Clemson, these teams that are winning championships that are having good showings on the elite level. And it's just really, it's really, really hard to do. I feel like almost in a way that OU's going to have to capture kind of lightning in a bottle to finally get over that hump. It's going to have to be the right team in the right year. And that's why I look at 2021 because Ohio State's going to be reloading at quarterback. Clemson's going to be reloading at quarterback. We don't really know what Alabama's going to look like with Mac Jones this year. And 2021, third year in the system defensively, this should be the best defense that they've had up to date. Spencer Rattler's going to be back. All these wide receivers are going to be back. Like 2021 is the year that I'm looking at saying, okay, this needs to be the year where OU finally gets over the hump. But if we're looking at it realistically, here's why it's so tough, man, is – the level that they're trying to get to is Alabama and Clemson. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include Ohio State in that group because if they're not already there, I believe they're about to be there because they're an elite program. Well, how do you catch up with those programs? Well, obviously, you've got to recruit as well, if not better, than those three schools right now. Well, think of the recruiting situation Alabama's in. They're in the most talent-rich area in the country, and all Nick Saban or any of those assistant coaches needs to do is walk through the door and say, hey, you want to win a national championship? Yeah, okay. Do you want to go to the NFL draft? Yeah, okay. We'll come to Tuscaloosa. Pretty easy to recruit to Alabama right now. Same thing with Clemson. Clemson, South Carolina is, is, is an awesome town. They have awesome facilities. They're winning at an incredible rate. They're in a talent area rich of the country. And then Ohio State, to use a Game of Thrones reference, they're the king of the north. They can get anybody that they want in that area of the country. They can go down south to Texas and get the best kids. They can go to Florida and get the best kids. And, and it's not like Oklahoma's having a huge issue recruiting right now. They're getting great players on the offensive side of the ball. But they can't recruit to the level defensively of those three other schools and the great situation that they're in. Oklahoma just has to find – you know what, maybe the three or four star kids that are diamonds in the rough, but man, they develop those kids into great football players. It's, it's going to be tough to match those schools defensively, but I feel like that's the only way that they're finally going to have to get over the hump. 
How bad does pay-per-view suck for the opening game of the college football season for Oklahoma in a year where attendance is limited, tailgating is non-existent, and everybody just wants football? How hypocritical does this sound by OU? It's, okay, we're practicing, but nobody gets any access. We're not going to show you any player interviews. We're not going to allow fans to come to or watch any sort of the scrimmages. Essentially, we are going to lock down everything from the fans to the media. You cannot in any way feel a part of our program. Oh, but by the way, we expect you to pay $55 to watch our first game against Missouri State, maybe the worst team we've played in 20 years. Like, you you get that? I mean, it's, it's so it's hypocritical by OU. And I know that people will pay that money to watch the opening game on Saturday. But I just have a problem with just how closed off the program is nowadays, how secretive it is nowadays. Fans can't be involved with the program anymore. And yet it's like $55 to watch a game like Missouri State. Get out of here. I, I, I mean, I think people will buy it, sure. But I do think that there's a lot of people that's going to say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm good. I'll spend my time and my money elsewhere. I was having this conversation yesterday. Who makes that decision? Because I I'm, I don't know how that works and and what the relationship is with OU and whoever's putting that on. Like wh- who's the, who's ultimately the person that that pushes the launch button on pay per view? Well, it's it's in their contract. They have that with with Sooner Sports TV, and this is the way that I understand it. Okay, you'll see on Fox Sports Oklahoma a lot of that Sooner Sports TV content, right? right? Maybe it's like the show that they have at Rudy's or the press conference, whatever. So like there's a contract built in there to my understanding that, okay, we're going to air all your Sooner Sports TV stuff on Fox Sports. Okay. But you have to via the contract have one pay-per-view game each and every year. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a Joe C athletics decision more than it is an actual contract decision that they're in. That's the way I understand okay, it. Okay, yeah. That, I mean, that makes sense. I, I just didn't know what the process was there. And there's no, there's obviously not a good game to pick to do that. It seems yeah. like it would be hard for me to spend that money on a game that you know Oklahoma is going to, to win by halftime. At the same time, it's the first glimpse that you get of the team. And so that kind of also forces you into spending the money because, you know, again, you don't want to miss the, the first viewing of what we've all kind of been anticipating for months and not knowing if we were even going to have it. Uh, and, and look, who knows if we're even going to have it two weeks from this Saturday. I mean, the whole thing could shut down at any point. So it's such a, an interesting dynamic. And, and this goes back to my issue with Major League Baseball. We have all these blackout games that, that like we can't watch the Astros or we can't watch. I forget who, who else it is. Maybe the, the Rockies because they're in our blackout zone when fans aren't allowed to go to those games anyway. Like, that's mind-blowing to me. And we're in this position in our world where limited attendance, and again, it, like, the fact that you're making it even more difficult for people to watch that blows my mind considering the circumstance. Yeah, I, I mean, right. I mean, th- there are a lot of people that, you know, don't have jobs right now, right? I mean, money's yeah. tight for everybody right now. And, like, $35, right? Most people can afford $35 or $29.99, whatever. Like $54.99, dude, that's an outrageous number for, for that product, you know? And and I get it from OU's aspect. Like, they haven't had money coming to the program for a really long time. I'm sympathetic to that. They, they need money coming in. But, like, God, $55 is just 
it, it's outrageous. And I, I feel like people, you know, I mean, people who are in their 20s now that really know how to work the Internet and stuff, they're going to watch it via Periscope apps or, you know, something like that. I just I, I don't know. I, I just think it's a it's a really, really bad message. And I know it's in their contract, but just make the program more available to your normal fans. Make them feel a part of it outside of six home games in a Saturday every single year and don't charge fifty four ninety nine for a pay-per-view game against Missouri State. I, I have no problem with any fan, OU fan, whoever that says, you know what, screw you. I'll just listen to it on the radio for free then then watch your, you know, watch your stupid watch your stupid broadcast for fifty five bucks. How are you feeling about what the postseason might look like? I man, I, I just think that there's too much money involved and everybody needs a payday here, right? <laughs> I really think that we're still going to have the four-team playoff and the two sites this year, the Sugar Bowl. I think that that's going to happen. I guess my only question is the Rose Bowl this year, right? And, and I know that they are playing NFL games out in the state of California, but are we realistically going to have a Rose Bowl this year where nobody's in attendance? How, how weird is that going to be? How weird is it going to be if Clemson plays, let's say Clemson plays Georgia this year, at the Rose Bowl and it's empty. Nobody's there. That's that's going to be really weird. That's really going to suck. But yeah, I just and going back to what I said a while ago, I, I think that once we continue to get through weekends where it's proven that we can play football, I, I think that we're going to be good. Like I, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to finish the season, which means to me that we're going to play in a college football playoff. And my prediction right now is it looks the same, just a lot less fans. And I don't think that we see teams go out there for like a week before the bowl trip, you know, and get to hang out and enjoy all the sides. I think you'll probably see a situation where teams show up two or three days before the game, get prepared and then play it and then get ready for the national championship on January 11th, which is, I think is in Miami. But I, I think, yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll look probably pretty much the exact same structure wise. Yeah. I, I'm, I 100% believe we're going to see a playoff. I just don't know about the rest of the, the bowl schedule and whether or not they want to potentially have, you know, teams playing extra games or sending teams on trips and, and just how all that's going to work. Well, I don't think that the teams necessarily will want to go to the bowl games. Like if you go to, let's say the Boca Raton bowl, right? Um, almost always the teams that go to the Boca Raton bowl, like lose money going to those games, like the bowl payout can't supplement taking the entire team to Florida for five, six days. So yeah, like if you're a, I guess you're only playing 10 games this year, but if you're a five and five football team and you're able to go to some lower tier bowl game, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. If teams say, nah, we're good, we actually really don't have it in our budget right now to take a loss, you know, flying somewhere to play one football game. I think with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 opting out and not having those two conferences be a part of this, with the potential of not having bowl games other than the college football playoff, I truly believe this. I, I think there is a significant chance this is the last year that we, or maybe, maybe this is the last time in the structure of this contract that we see this format before they do something significant to change what the college football postseason looks like. I mean, that would mean eight teams, right? Would be the easiest thing. And I, with the money, with the added revenue that could be from that, I, I, I agree with you, man. I, I, th I think that was going to happen anyway. I think we all expected that, but I think that that timeline is going to move up just because the money's going to be there and everything's going to point towards that. So I'm pretty anti 
eight-team playoff. I love the four-team playoff because I just think it it keeps the regular season so interesting for college football, and I think college football has the best regular season out of any sport that's out there. You know, but if the eight-team playoff means more money, then <laughs> whatever, I'm fine with it and I'll deal with it. I can't, I can't complain about more football. I guess. I, I, I will enjoy it from a viewership standpoint. Like I'm not going to turn away from more football and especially more significant football where you have top teams playing each other. But I'm with you in terms of what every weekend means in the college football schedule, and essentially all these teams in most years have essentially a 12-game playoff, right? Like, that's what yeah. the regular season is, and one loss potentially means you've lost your playoff spot. And and so every game is literally Armageddon. I mean, win or lose, your season potentially ends in terms of what your ultimate goal is. So eight teams, I think, especially for the Alabamas, for the Oklahomas, for the Clemsons, for the Ohio States, eight teams almost gives you like a mulligan, so to speak. Because all those team, all those teams with a loss are getting in, without a doubt. So that to me kind of just changes that aspect of it a little bit. But again, I, I'm going to love watching the football that's played. Yeah, and, and here's my problem with the 18 playoff too: is people say, "Well, one single loss won't cost you a chance to win the national championship." Well, okay, I would say to those people, "Well, go back every year we've had the 14 playoff, and you tell me a team that was left out that you realistically think could have won the national championship." Because I think the best team has won the national championship in a 14 playoff every single year that we've been doing this. And also factor this in: out of all the semifinal games we've had. Oklahoma, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State last year, those were good games, but the rest of them were kind of ass-kicking, were they not? Blowouts, So in a a four-team playoff with as many blowouts as we've had, is that really going to change if we add four more teams to the equation? I almost feel like like, maybe we get one good semifinal game in the first round, but the other two are complete blowouts, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's the setting we have now. The the playoff games, like you said, other than than two of them maybe have not been good games. They've been blowouts, and then we all kind of get ready for a national championship game that we get really excited about because we have two dominant performances for the most part that we're we're leaving behind in those games. But yeah, I, I and and the other thing is, I think we always like have this debate about who the fourth team is and who's the most deserving, and and most of the time. That fourth team isn't even in the same class, at least in my opinion, as maybe the one and two seeds. Well, I mean, OU last year is a great example, right? Like, OU was a nice team. They were a good team, but they didn't belong in the same field as Clemson or uh, LSU or even Ohio State last year, right? So, sure, we can we can include two lost teams in there now. We can include a UCF or a Cincinnati in there now. But, you know, I, I think the NBA playoff structure, how it is, like – just about every single year if not every year with how many games they play and how many rounds there are the best team in the nba wins it every single year i think just because of the the seven game series structure like the best team is always going to win out and now if you if you move that to an 18 playoff in college football if you have three playoff games the best team in college football is going to win it every single year i mean that is great in some aspects but it totally cuts out the chances of a team like a maybe a 2000 Oklahoma coming out of nowhere and winning the national champion, right? Like we're not like if we move it to an 18 playoff, like the, the national champions for the next 10 to 15 years are going to come from Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, and maybe OU. It's going to be reserved to like three or four programs and that's it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, I think this is going to be a really interesting season. I, I'm so curious to to see what like the 
the weekly playoff shows look like. I think more than anything, like I'm just excited to see what those debates are going to be every Tuesday when you consider the condensed teams that we're talking about in that race. Uh, the fact that you don't have non-conference schedules, you have that one game for the Big 12, for example. And, I mean, obviously the value in what the strength, I guess, of these conferences is going to be considered greatly in terms of the rankings. But, you know, what does it look like if Oklahoma struggles to beat a team, but, you know, they're missing six significant players because of COVID or, or something else? I mean, I, I know that Lincoln Riley said they're not going to release that information, so we're not going to know why players are out. But that's something that's going to be considered, and, and the dynamic of that to me is, is incredibly intriguing. How about a team that we both watched on Monday night? BYU looked pretty good, didn't they? BYU looked like a really good football team. Navy won like 10 games last year, beat Kansas State in a bowl game, and BYU went out there and just absolutely thrashed them. Well, they only play eight games this year, and their toughest opponent is either Army or at Houston, depending on which team you think is better. Yeah. BYU is going to go 8-0 and this year. So if BYU is 8-0, but not played a good schedule and play two or three less games than anybody else. Like, how do you do that? How do you factor in an undefeated Cincinnati this year? Who's going to have a pretty good win against UCF? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an, it's an odd year because three power conferences are playing for four spots. So who's that four spot like that? That's the debate this year, right? Like the ACC winner, the SEC winner, the big 12 winner, they're all going to be in that fourth spot. Is it a one loss Notre Dame? Is it a one loss Florida? Is it an undefeated UCF? Is it an undefeated BYU? Like that's where that's where all the drama is going to be. And if all those things happen, if Notre Dame's one loss, Florida's one loss, UCF's undefeated, BYU's undefeated, which could happen, like, God, you could have a mess on your hands, man. I've got the answer there. It's it's whoever the SEC team is. <laughs> probably so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's probably the easy answer there. You're probably yeah. right. But but again, your point is is completely accurate because the thing that is so much fun and also maddening about college football and brings us back every week is that who the best team in the country is isn't something that's scientific. It's up for debate, and we all see the game differently. We all interpret, uh, you know, the the different aspects of what we have to consider for like, you know, strength of schedule and, and, you know, all these different things that, that go into the equation. We, we all weight all those things differently. So like for me, the best team in the country may be Ohio state for somebody else. The best team in the country may be Clemson. And in a year where like nobody's playing the same schedule, maybe nobody's playing the same number of games. Potentially there are, there are game cancellations along the way. Like does one team playing more games have more weight than another team playing less games, but winning by a greater margin. Like, it's already a sport that's left up to debate for how you, you, you know, crown a champion. But like, I feel like that's going to be even more magnified this season. Yeah. And Hey, like a, a team in Stillwater, Oklahoma has to be looking at the system this year and saying, this is it boys. This is, this is it. We, we've got the team. And for the first time ever, we can be a one loss conference champ and for sure be in the college football playoffs. So it, it really benefits teams like Oklahoma State, like an Iowa State, if they were to be a one-loss team and win the conference. Like, I truly believe it. If OSU is ever going to make the college football playoff, it's it's going to be in 2020. Yeah. I mean, for any Big 12 team, I mean, this is your opportunity. Yeah, that's you, true. you win the league. You're, I mean, it, barring some, like, four-loss team somehow having an opportunity to play in that championship game and, and pulling off a miracle, uh, I, I, I mean, this is the year for everybody to, to make that run. 
Well, I think it's even a great thing for OU because if all things are equal and they're a one-loss team, I think the committee finally says, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and sit this one out. We, we've seen you guys in the playoff for the past several years. We're going to put in a one-loss Oregon instead or a one-loss Utah. I think the committee was wanting to do that last year, but they weren't really left with the choice because OU won their conference and they had one loss and everybody in the Pac-12 had two losses. I think they wanted to keep OU out last year, but now if OU is a one-loss conference champ, they're going to get in. And, yeah, I don't think that that would have been the case in a, in a normal college football season this year. Yeah, there's no doubt. Dude, it's been a ton of fun. I've had a, a great time talking college football. I, I just, I, I'm like fingers crossed. Nothing happens in the next three days because I've allowed myself to get completely excited about this, and I'll be devastated if we're not watching football on Saturday night. God, me and you both, man. Especially here locally, like what a tease it would be if both in-state schools have to move back a week. Like we'll, we'll still have football on, but you know how it is man it's it's just not the same so yeah. just let us play saturday let us get through that and let's uh let's let's roll right into conference play it does kind of suck though that OU is supposed to play tennessee at home this week man that would have been fun oh yeah that would have been great and and we just you know we don't get many great non-conference games anyway in college football sure. i'm not saying oklahoma hasn't played some big time names but in college football in general like i think we all get excited about big non-conference matchups yeah, yeah, especially since Tennessee was a little bit on the rise. But uh, no non-conference games to speak of this year. But whatever, dude. You know what? I'm just glad that we're having it. Ten-game schedule. I don't care. Just just give it to me, and I'll take it for what it is. So OU wins by 100, right? I mean, is that – I, I, I was going to say 120, which is – <laughs> I don't know how big of a uh, sports betting guy you are, but you got to fire off on OU minus 40 and a half this weekend. I mean, come on. It's a no brainer. I think both state schools, when you consider the lack of practice that Tulsa's had going into even, even getting this next week to prepare for Oklahoma state, you would, you would imagine that's a huge edge for the Cowboys. And I'm curious to see if the line changes next Tuesday, but I think it was like what? 20 something. I was, I was prepared to bet both state schools massively this weekend. I think OSU's minus 21 and a half, and I'm with you, man, because it's going to be the Chuba Hubbard show and the Tylen Wallace show, and everybody's going to be struggling to tackle. And OSU's not really the team you want to play in week one as an inferior opponent when you haven't tackled all that much yeah. in the 2020 calendar year. Like, Chuba's going to run just – Chuba's going to have stupid numbers against TU, man. And, and for OU, when you have so many fresh faces, you have to get those guys reps. I mean, it's not like you can just yeah. say play a quarter, you're up by 35, and it's time to sit down. Like, those guys have to get game reps before they start conference play. This is your only opportunity, so you have to take advantage of it. Yeah, you're going to let Spencer Rattler spin it. You're going to let these running backs, you know, play a lot. Like, I, like I'm totally with you. I, I expect OU to cover this by halftime. And I think that this needs to be a game, for, especially for the OU defense, this needs to be a game where you shut out Missouri State. I, I've said this so many times, but, like, here's how bad Missouri State is. OU beat South Dakota 70-14 to 14 last year. And I know it always doesn't work out like this, but OU beat South Dakota 70-14 to 14 last year. And then that same South Dakota team went to Missouri State last year at Missouri State and won by five touchdowns. So this team's bad. They're, they're, they're really, really bad. You need to shut them out. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. Like, I, I was joking about the 100, but and, and I don't think Lincoln would try to score 100. I think he would definitely do something to prevent them from reaching that number. But I, my point is accurate. I think they just roll this team. Yeah, they should. They should, no doubt. All right, my friend, let's catch up again soon. I enjoyed it, and uh, I'll be tuned in to you and Teddy.
Yeah, man, and I love the podcast. Keep up the great work, and uh, man, it was, it was really fun talking football here for you. Now, or let's let's do it again for sure. Hey, next time I come over, just make sure your toilet works, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll be set. I'm gonna have caution tape over the front door, or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. I'm gonna have to figure that out. I'll stock up on toilet paper if you're coming over. That I, that I'm for sure of. I love it, man. I love it. All right, take care, buddy. All right, see you, man. Once again, appreciate Tyler McComas for joining me on the Colby Daniels podcast, host of The Rush with Teddy Lehman on Sports Talk 1400 weekdays from 2 to 6 p.m. That does it for this episode of the Colby Daniels podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. Please rate the podcast, review the podcast, and share the podcast with your friends. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so via Twitter at Colby underscore Daniels or on Instagram, Colby.Daniels. It's game week, guys. Enjoy it. Everyone stay safe, and I'll talk to you next time. Podcast is over.